edition of Jamal about sports coming to you on a Monday, May 13th, 2019, kicking off the show, the classic Billy Joel Big Shot. We've got a big show to get to, and of course, figured that song was apropos as uh, yesterday's two game sevens featured uh, some big shots, of course, the biggest of which being Kawhi Leonard's uh, game winning shot that bounced on the rim four times before it went in with no time left. We'll get to that. We'll break down uh, Toronto-Philly as well. We'll talk about uh, the NBA draft, not necessarily the draft, but the lottery is tomorrow, and what where the Knicks fall in the lottery, what that means for them, potential free agents and such. And we'll do some Mets uh, and Yanks and a uh, little trip around Major League Baseball as well. But we start with uh, a hell of a day yesterday if you're an NBA fan. Two game sevens. First game was Portland-Denver. By the way, good job by the networks and the NBA making that the early game at 3.30 and then Philly-Toronto at 7, right? So somebody might have actually watched that Denver-Portland game, which has been a great series. Game 7, although most people didn't get to see any of it because all those games are at 10.30 at night here on the East Coast. I shouldn't say most people. Most people on the East Coast probably didn't see it. And although Damian Lillard is... A star, he's not a star on the same level or stage as, you know, LeBron, Durant, Steph Curry, uh, maybe even, you know, a Joel Embiid. Uh, but he and CJ McCollum, who I've talked about many times on the show, uh, are great players. And then Denver's got their own emerging star in Nikola Jokic, who I've also talked about many times, and he certainly proved himself to be a breakout star uh, in this series as well. We'll get to some of the, the numbers uh, a little while. but So nice job by the NBA there, putting that game on at 3.30, then have Philly-Toronto at 7. So we'll get to that. So the first game, Denver-Portland. Look, it was in Denver, right? Talked about it, second-best record in the West. Uh, it had been, a, obviously, back-and-forth series. Portland uh, held serve at game, in Game 6 at home to force the Game 7. And Denver got out to a 17-point lead. And listen, I understand a lot of people didn't expect Denver to win 54 games or whatever it was. And they're a fairly young team. And we've talked about before, you know, minus uh, Jokic, you know, not there's no stars on that team. Look, Jamal Murray can play like a star at times. Um, but, you know, they're the classic sum is greater than the whole of the parts type of a team. Um, I'm sorry, you're up 17 at home. In Game Seven, you got to figure out a way to close that out. Now, doesn't mean Michael Malone's not a good coach. He's a very good coach, one of the better young coaches in the NBA. His father, Brendan Malone, is a longtime Knicks assistant. Um, and uh, you know, so and certainly the future is bright in Denver because it's a pretty young core. But if you're a Denver fan, I mean, obviously you got to be pretty upset today. You know, but uh, look, you give Portland a ton of credit. I mean. Listen, I've said many times, I've asked the question on this show many times, you know, look, 
Nothing against Lillard, nothing against McCollum. Two wonderful players. That formula for the last, let's say, five years, right? McCollum came in the league in 2012 from Lehigh after they beat Duke in the NCAA tournament. He didn't really play much his rookie year. So let's say, you know, 2013. Last, let's say, six seasons, you know, those guys have been, you know, the bulwarks of that team. And, you know, they've, I, I, I said they win 45, 50 games. They make the playoffs every year. They haven't had a lot of playoff success. This year has been different. And it's, 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 it's somewhat ironic in that they finally kind of found their third banana, so to speak, in uh, Jurkic, and he got hurt. Now, they shrewdly picked up Anis Cantor even before Jurkic got hurt. Um, and not that Cantor is as good a player, but he's a pretty good consolation prize. And while he wasn't a total stud in this series, because he's playing with a dislocated left shoulder, by the way, uh, I mean, even again... Not a huge game yesterday, but 12 points, 13 rebounds. Uh, and then you add in Zach Collins coming off the bench, young center who they drafted out of Gonzaga the year before, who played really well. Um, you know, they made up for that loss there. And then they had role players step up. Uh, you know, look, we've talked about Al Amino. He got hurt yesterday. He didn't play much, but he had good games in this series. Mo Harkless had good games in this series. Eric Turner, Evan Turner who, you know, is a classic one of these guys, played one year at Ohio State, had a really good freshman year, was severely overdrafted, right? I think he was a top-five pick. He was a total flame-out in Philly. He was okay for Boston, and he's a nice role player. Now, he's not a star, but he's a very smart player, very high basketball IQ, and he played great yesterday. And after not doing much all series, he had 14 points off the bench yesterday and made some key plays late. And the key play in that game yesterday was the fourth quarter when it looked like Denver was going to get a fast break layup the other way, I think, to go back up one after Portland had come back and taken the lead. And McCollum, of all people, who's 6'3", comes out of nowhere to block a layup shot, you know, LeBron James style. Um, And uh, Portland came back down the other end and scored. I mean, listen, it it was really just a fun series to watch. I watched a lot of it. I mean, I watched... I watched... Lillard, what was that? Game six, I, wa- I actually stayed up and watched that whole game. That was shocking, I know, but I actually did. Um, that was a great series. Portland won that one late. Um, you know, McCollum played great. Lillard did not have a particularly good game yesterday. He didn't shoot it well at all. He was awful in the first half. Made two big threes, though, in the fourth quarter. And, you know, despite not shooting it well, and we'll go to the stats in a second, uh, he did... You know, have I think eight or nine assists and, and and I think ten rebounds. Let's take a look really quickly here. Take a quick look at the box score yesterday's game. Uh, Lillard was three for seventeen. I mean, that's pretty atrocious. But as I said, he did make two big threes late in the game. Five for six from the line, but he had ten rebounds and eight assists and three steals. So he did chip in in other ways. But I mean, McCollum is the story of the game. 37 points and 17 for 29. You know, lots of guys put up big numbers, but it's on a ton of shots. 17 for 29 is about as good as you're going to get. And he also had nine rebounds, by the way, for good measure. And that one huge block that we talked about. And as I said, Evan Turner, who hadn't done much all series, had 14.7 rebounds, two assists off the bench. Uh, Zach Collins, you know, seven points, five rebounds, four block shots. And you combine that with Cantor's, as I said, 12 points and 13 rebounds. And, you know, look, they did enough against Jokic. 
They slowed him down enough. I mean, Jokic had 29 points, but here's a great example. 11 for 26. Also missed a big foul shot late in the game, which is unlike him. He's a very good foul shooter. And, you know, he's a guy that, you know, has had triple doubles in, you know, this series. Had 13 rebounds, but only two assists. Did have four block shots. I mean, look, the guy's a wonderful player. But, look, Jamal Murray had a bad game. He had 17 points, four for 18. Paul Millsap, who had, had a, who had been having a very good series, they're kind of stretch four kind of guy, three for 13, 10 points. And they didn't get any, they hardly got anything off the bench. They got eight from Will Barton, four from Plumley, and uh, five from, uh, what's his name? Uh, Montez Morris? I don't even know. One of, the, one of these, more, no, it's not, not, not one of the Morris twins. This is Monte Morris. Sorry, there's Markeith Morris, there's Marcus Morris, there's Monte Morris. Uh, and then, let's see, who else? That was it. I mean, Malik Beasley barely played. Um, they started Tony Craig, who's a defensive stopper. He only gave him eight. And Gary Harris had a pretty good game, 15 points, uh, six rebounds, three assists, seven for 11. But, you know, look. Hell of a job by the Blazers. Um, and now they <laughs> have the task of playing Golden State, who looked for all the world like they, I mean, they were on the ropes. They were down in game five against Houston. Kevin Durant gets hurt. Close game. And then Golden State still came back. Then they go to game six in Houston with no Durant, with Houston a chance to close that game out. And Steph Curry, I think, went scoreless in the first half. He did. And then had 33 points in the second half. And Golden State pulled away late in that game. If you're Houston, that is a crushing, crushing loss. Crushing loss. I mean, if you were ever going to get past Golden State, this was the year to do it. Right? Harden having a hell of a season. Chris Paul healthy. No excuses like last year when Chris Paul got hurt. Although Chris Paul's not nearly the same player he was. Still good, but he's not the same player. Um, you know, P.J. Tucker, who's a wonderful player. I mean, just a, the kind of guy every winning team wants to have on their team, right? Sets picks, takes charges, hits open threes, plays good defense, loose balls, glue guy, right? But not talentless, can, can, can hit open threes. He had a good series. Capella did his thing with his double-doubles. Um, Eric Gordon had a couple of huge games. As a matter of fact, Eric Gordon was badly outplaying Clay Thompson for most of the series. Although Clay Thompson also stepped up uh, in the last two games. Um, and Clay Thompson's a very good two way player, too, by the way. He plays excellent defense. But, uh, I mean, if ever there was a time for Houston to get past Golden State, this was it, and they couldn't do it. And it's funny because I like Mike D'Antoni, and, and you know, it, it's, 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 it's interesting. When guys get away from the Knicks, isn't it interesting, be it coaches or former players, except for Melo, who's garbage, but except, except for him, you see these guys, everyone who leaves the Knicks, their tenure starts to look better and better and better, and they, they, they go on to seem to have success other places. It's interesting how that works, isn't it? Hmm, I wonder why that is. Oh, maybe because the Knicks are the worst run Organization maybe in all of sports, and we'll get to what idiotic moves I'm sure they're going to make this offseason to ruin any hope of a, of a turnaround there. 
But I digress. So I kind of, you know, I like D'Antoni. I think he's a likable guy. I think he got a bit of a raw deal here in New York. But, you know, Harden, as I've said a million times, can't root for the guy. Can't. And, and throw Chris Paul in there, too, by the way, who's a dir- as dirty a player as there is in the NBA. And yet, because he does state farm, state, those cutesy state farm commercials, everybody thinks he's a swell guy. Except he's one of the dirtiest, chippiest players in the NBA. You know? So, don't like him. Really don't like Harden. I mean, look. This whole landing area, airspace nonsense that I've talked about before, I mean, it's got to go. It's got to go. I mean, Harden literally just forearm shivers guys out of the way, does his step back three, and then launches his body forward as he's coming down. And if he barely grazes a guy who's just standing there with his arms up, he gets the foul call. It's ridiculous. There were one game they didn't fall for that banana in the tailpipe nonsense. And, and Houston moaned and groaned about it. But other than that, he gets those calls all the time. It's infuriating. And by the way, it's not just him. I mean, look, I remember a time when there, there you never saw guys uh, foul three-point shooters, ever. It was so rare. Uh, by the way, I, I understand now it's 20 years ago. But the four-point play with Larry Johnson, I mean, that was that was unheard of back then. You never fouled a three-point shooter. But now, because everybody just jacks up threes right and left, and I guess guys still haven't learned how to defend the three-point shot in, that, in a way without fouling. But again, a lot of it is this airspace rule. So guys have found a loophole, and they're taking advantage of it by creating the contact. The shooters are the ones creating the contact. But that, that Larry Johnson play, what was that, 99? So it's 20 years ago? That was unheard of. When Scottie Pippen fouled Hubert Davis when he was taking a three-point shot uh, years before that in the playoffs, that was unheard of. You don't, you know, even if it's a foul, yo, how, how could you call that? You don't reward three-point shooters by giving them fouls. Take the ball to the basket like a man. <laughs> that used to be the refrain. And then in the playoffs, if you did take the ball to the basket, you're getting killed. Not today. Now, every mildly hard foul has to be stopped and reviewed to see if it's a flagrant. Anything above the, anything around the head and neck area has to instantly be reviewed. I mean, they, there was a play last night in the game, Toronto Philly, where, uh, I'm trying to think who shot the ball. It was, I think it was Jimmy Butler, shot a three. And who was defending on a play from Toronto? Might have been, I think it was Serge Ibaka. And, like, his hand, like, grazed Jimmy Butler's head after the shot was released. So, okay, it's a foul. That's fine. I have no problem calling it a foul. But then they have to go to the – they have to stop play and go to the video monitor to see if perhaps it was a fl- – I mean, maybe it was a flagrant foul because now everything above the head and neck area has to be reviewed. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, sports overall has become – ridiculous, right? Baseball, you can't slide hard in the second base anymore. Take out a guy on a double play. Can't run over the catcher, God forbid. Catcher can't block the plate either, though. All in response to two things. Idiotic, cheap shot artist Chase Utley, cheap shotting Ruben Tejada, 
on the Mets in 2015, which should have been, which, which should have, which, which was illegal at the time. They didn't need to change the rule. The rule already existed. All they had to do was the umpires in the field call an automatic double play. That would have been the end of it. I understand Ruben Tejada broke his leg or had his leg broken by Chase Sutley on his cheap late roll block slide, but that's always been uh, illegal. For some reason, umps didn't call it. So, of course, Major League Baseball overcorrected and overcompensated, so now you can't do anything at second base anymore. And then again, as I like to always call him crybaby Buster Posey, got run too hard once seven years ago, and so now we can't have that. We can't have hard collision plays at the plate anymore either. It's ridiculous. And now in the NBA, again, everything gets looked at, I mean, look, I'm not, I, I'll be the first to admit, and I, you know, was particularly in the, the, the era, the, the Riley, the Pat Riley and Van Gundy, Knicks, the mid to late 90s. Look, some of the stuff they did was completely over the line, and some of the basketball overall between the Heat and the Knicks was, it was probably, if you're not, if not a fan of either of those teams, unwatchable. It was unwatchable. I'll admit that. I'm not saying you got to go back to that. You got to go back to Charles Oakley clotheslining Scottie Pippen. <laughs> By the way, the Knicks are not the first team to do that. The Pistons did it too, and the Bulls were plenty dirty and cheap shoddy themselves. Uh, you know, so whatever. But I'm not saying we got to go back to that. But what's going on in today's NBA? It's, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's so so. There's no more men in the NBA. There's no, there's no more Maurice Lucases or Truck Robinsons or Charles Oakleys or even Horace Grant, Bob Lanier, even Bill Lambeer, Larry Bird, McHale. There's, there's none of those guys anymore. Those guys don't exist. Patrick Ewing. It's a bunch of delicate, sensitive flowers now that are on their Instagrams every two seconds. You know, and it's all about what are you going to do for me? Please. Listen, I, I get it. I know. Grumpy old man. I understand. That's fine. And listen, they're not none, right? I mean, I just mentioned a bunch of wonderful players. Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum, Ennis Cantor. Ennis Cantor, by the way, could play in any era. And so could some of these other guys. Uh, Nikola Jokic. But, you know, like even Draymond Green. Right, Draymond Green is kind of, he's an instigator, he's an irritant, he's a fake tough guy. Those old guys from the 90s would wipe the floor with Draymond Green. James Harden would get his face smashed in on a nightly basis if he played in the 90s. (laughs) Anyway, I digress. All right, so that was that series. So now we got Portland, I think, tomorrow night. They kick off, uh, yeah, Tuesday night, 9 o'clock against Golden State. Uh, Golden State has home court in that uh, series, uh, but no Durant in game one. So, you know, listen, Portland, if there ever was a time to sneak a game, that's it. Now, remember, Golden State already won a championship without Kevin Durant. Not saying he's not a great player. He's a great player. One of the five best players in the league, probably. But don't, you know, look, we just saw them go beat Houston without him. So it's not like... You know, you expect Portland to win. As a matter of fact, I bet you Golden State would be favored in that game. But I'm just saying, you know, it's, they're calling it a mild calf strain for Durant. Those can be, listen, all you got to do is watch a Mets game and listen to Keith Hernandez talk about calf, calf strains. So um, those, those can be tricky. 
So we'll see. He's definitely missing game one. Now, we get to the game of the night, which was Philly-Toronto, which, by the way, was not a great game early. I mean, the, the, the score at halftime was 44-40. It was an ugly game. Both teams – I mean, Philly didn't score for the first – I think they missed their first nine shots, and they were only down 6 nothing because Toronto couldn't make a shot either. So it was a hideous start to the game. Both teams were very tight. Guys are missing shots they normally make. You saw a lot of jump shots came up short, which is a, uh, a telltale sign that guys are tight. Then, you know, the action got a little bit better, obviously, as, as the game wore on. Uh, and then, you know, look, back and forth, back and forth down the stretch. And look, I'll, t- I'll tell you, uh, Philly had three of the worst possessions you're ever going to want to see in your life. Their last three out of the last four possessions. I mean, first of all, Joel, Joel Embiid, I understand, you know, he's tired. He's got, you know, uh, stamina issues because he misses games and he was sick earlier. And I'm not saying he doesn't play hard. He, he gives you what he has. But you got to I mean, Toronto does not have anybody that can guard him, including Marcus Gasol. And when you're in dire need of a basket, he's got the guy 7'2", 280 with a vast array of moves. Plus can hit medium-range jump shots, can even step out and hit a three, but that's not what you want him doing late in the game, in a tie game, in this game seven. But can you get the ball to him in the paint, please, and then force Toronto's hand? So if Toronto comes to double him, by the way, Embiid's also a very skilled passer. You know, if Toronto wants to run a double at him, you trust him to make the right pass and get the ball to a guy open shot. And if... Toronto closes out hard on that guy. Swing it around to the open guy. You'll get an open look. And he had two 24-second shot clock violations. Ridiculous. And I'll tell you this. Ben Simmons is a wonderful player. 6'11", point guard, whatever. He and Embiid are not a good fit. One of those two guys has to go, in my humble opinion. I think it's got to be Simmons. Because Simmons can't shoot. So his 6'11 body, when it gets into the paint and then beads there, just clogs up the works. It's not good. The floor spacing gets all out of whack. So I think Simmons got to go. We'll see what, if Philly agrees and if they make any moves in the offseason. But look, Jimmy Butler's a free agent. Tobias Harris a free agent. So they might lose two of their top five guys. But the story of this game last night was Kawhi Leonard. I mean, obviously, the game-winning jump shot, you know, basically with his foot on the three-point line, on the baseline, falling out of bounds with Embiid running at him, you know, his 7-2 body with his arms outstretched, hits the rim, bounces high, hits the rim, hits the rim, hits the rim, goes in. With about, you know, the the shot left his hands with about .4 seconds left on the shot clock, on the game clock. Otherwise, we're headed for overtime. And the ball went in. I mean, excruciating, obviously, for both sides, but more so, of course, for Philly, as you see the ball go in. And if you're a fan, I would imagine on the first bounce, you think, oh, phew, all right, at least we're going to go to overtime. And then the ball goes in. You had to be incredulous. But, I mean, Kawhi was unbelievable. Again, now look, he didn't shoot it great. He was 16 for 39. Two for nine from three. But, I mean, look, he scored 41 of his team's 92 points. (laughs) I think I'll give him a pass on not shooting for a high percentage. And then, you know, eight rebounds, three assists, three steals, just for good measure. I mean, the guy's, guy's, guy's tremendous. Look, if there was one player 
He's going to be a free agent too. Of all the free agents, Durant, Clay Thompson, Kemba Walker, Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris. We'll, we'll get to Kyrie Jenner Irving in a second. Kawhi's the one guy I want on the Knicks. He's the best two-way player in the league. He just is. You know, and look, he, he's not... I understand things ended badly in, in, in San Antonio, but compared to some of these other exits, I mean, this guy's not exactly like to use from a different sport, Antonio Brown, with the Steelers. I mean, nobody really knows what happened there. Kind of strange situation, very unspurs-like, very unkawaii-like. Other than that, I mean, look, the guy didn't say anything. He doesn't say boo. Doesn't say boo on the court. He's not a self-promoter. He's not a trash talker. He just goes out and plays and leads by example. And he's not a prima donna or a diva or a look-at-me guy. He's not a complainer or a whiner like half of these guys in the NBA. He's perpetually, somehow, I make $25 million a year, and I'm 26 years old, and I play basketball for a living, but somehow I'm perpetually miserable, and I'm grumpy, and I grouse all the time, like Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. Which, by the way, I'm going to tell you again, if those two show up here in New York, I am done. 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 And it will go horribly wrong also. Kawhi Leonard should be first and foremost on the Knicks list. Now, listen, all the speculation is that he's from L.A. He wants to go back and play probably for the Clippers because they have the cap space. The Lakers don't. That's fine. At least ask. See if he wants to come here. He very well may want nothing to do with New York. That's fine. You have to ask. I mean, look, he did everything for them last night. Pascal Siakam was nowhere to be found. He had 11 points. He was 4 for 11. He was passing up shots right and left in the fourth quarter. He didn't want nothing to do with shooting the ball. Now, he did have 11 rebounds, but he did not have a particularly good game. Marcus Saul, he tries his best. He's not the player he used to be. He gave him 45 minutes, a valiant effort, you know, seven points. Kyle Lowry. Now, to be fair who has gotten a lot of criticism over the years because Toronto goes out early after having good regular seasons and he usually plays terribly in the playoffs. His line did not look great last night, only 10 points on 4 for 13 and 1 for 7 from 3. But he did have 6 assists and he had 6 rebounds, including 3 key offensive rebounds in the fourth quarter late in that game. So give him credit. That's a, a great example of how the box score doesn't even come close to telling the story. And I'm not a Kyle Lowry guy, but he played a good game for them and made some important key plays for them down the stretch in that game last night. And then Serge Ibaka actually played great for them off the bench. 17 points, 8 rebounds, 3 assists, uh, including a couple of big offensive boards uh, late in the fourth quarter of that game too. But that's it. I mean, they played, they played seven guys. Van Vliet did nothing. But that's it. They didn't play anybody else. No Norman Powell. No Jeremy Lin. None of those guys. So now it's Toronto, Milwaukee, and now we get to Milwaukee, Boston. I mean, that was, that, that was just a, an old-fashioned ass-whooping. Boston won game one. Chirpy geniuses like Paul Pierce, ex-Celtic, claimed that's it. See, see, series over. Boston's going to win. And then Milwaukee won the next four games. And Boston was non-competitive in the last two. Non-competitive. Blown out the gym. 
Kyrie Irving, nowhere to be found unless you want to count seven for 23. And then after the game says, well, there's nothing to be disappointed about. Mm, oh, is that right? Really? I'm glad you care so much. Listen, if the Knicks sign Kyrie Irving, I'm, I'm dead serious here. This is not hyperbole. I've already started flirting with the Nets. Right? Told you guys I went to the playoff game against Philly. I could walk to the arena from here. It's a wonderful place to go watch a basketball game. I like the Nets team. I like watching them on TV. I think Ian Eagle and Sarah Kustak is one of the more entertaining uh, broadcast teams to listen to. It's a lot to like about the Nets. A lot to recommend. Plus, they're run by guys from San Antonio, Sean Marks. So they know what they're doing. Smart, well-run team. I will easily devote all my attention to the Nets, and I will divorce the Knicks if they give a max contract or any contract to Kyrie Irving. I want nothing to do with that guy. Talented player to be sure, but guess what? He didn't like it in Cleveland when they, even after they won a championship, and to be fair to him, he made a huge shot in Game 7 of that series, but wasn't good enough for him because he wasn't the man. Not the guy. I have LeBron. I have to be in LeBron's shadow. So, okay. Went over to, worked his way over to Boston. Guess what? They were better without him last year. That team played better without him. They should have beaten Cleveland in the conference finals last year. They won 11 playoff games without him last year. They won five with him this year. And who they beat this year in the, in the playoffs? What, a wretched, uh, oh, the Pacers, a mediocre team who's missing their best player? Big deal. Good for you. I want nothing to do with them. Look, if you're the Knicks and you're trying to reestablish this new culture that's all about winning and team and positive mindset and mentality, why in the world would you invite the drama and negativity that Kyrie Irving brings to the table? Why? He was miserable in Boston where he was on a really good team with a really good coach. He didn't, you know, Cleveland wasn't good enough for him. He won a championship there. By the way, without LeBron, they did nothing. Why would you invite that in? Because you can? It makes no sense. Now, look, the Knicks want to sign Durant solo. That's one thing. But if Durant tells them, listen, I'm a package deal. It's me and Kyrie because that's the other great thing that the NBA does. And unfortunately, LeBron was the, 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 the poster child for that nonsense when, they went, when he went to the Heat 10 years ago with uh, Chris Bosh. But whatever. If Durant says, look, it's me and Kyrie or no deal, then no deal. Bye-bye. Then go sign Kemba Walker and Kawhi Leonard. Or, guess what? Depending on what happens in tomorrow's draft, look, if the Knicks get one of the first two picks tomorrow, which they're not going to, of course, but if they do, by some miracle, then the picks either Zion Williamson or John Morant, the point guard out of Murray State. One or the other. And then you, and then you obviously build your roster accordingly. Right? But the Knicks have young point guards on the roster. So maybe they don't want Kemba Walker. Maybe somebody wants Dennis Smith Jr. I don't know. Just don't give me Kyrie Irving because I'm dead serious. I can't root for him. Cannot, will not, won't do it. I will be done. 
And listen, I don't trust the Knicks to make the right decision. They've given us a lot of lip service this year. You know, they treated a 17-win season like it was cause for celebration. And look, I was Fizdale's biggest supporter to start. But, I mean, at, at some point, Fizz, you might want to ask someone on your team to play some defense. And if I have to hear one more time about how great Kevin Knox is, I'm going to throw up. Stop with the sell job on Kevin Knox. He stinks. And I don't care that he was 19, the youngest player in the league. I, I, I go by what I see. The kid gives you zero effort. Zero. None. And I don't see where all this supposed scary talent he's supposed to have, all this great scoring ability is either. I don't see it. Not a particularly great shooter. Doesn't have a back-to-the-basket game. Doesn't have a mid-range game. Now, look, I get it. Fizdale's got to be a cheerleader. He's probably doing that to maybe help lure free agents. Okay, I'll give him a pass on that. But you know what? Steve Mills has been here for all of the nonsense, all of it. Anuka Brown-Sanders, Isaiah Thomas, all of the garbage. Steve Mills has been here. I don't know how he's still here. Well, we do because the owner likes him. Worst owner in all of sports, even worse than the Wilpons, which is saying something. So Steve Mills has been a common denominator here. Knicks have been a joke. Now, I get it. He's not the general manager. Scott Perry is a general manager. Steve Mills hired Scott Perry. Scott Perry seems like an affable fellow. Might have made it. Look, the Mitchell Robinson pick looks like a great pick. Signing Alonzo Trier as a free agent looks like a good pick. I mean, there are a couple of positive signs. But I don't trust the Knicks to make the right decision. And again, if they sign Kyrie Irving, I'm done. That's it. Peace out. See you later. Netsies, I'm all yours. All right, we'll take a short break. We'll be back with baseball right after this. Okay, and we are back on a Monday evening edition of Jamal About Sports. So, a little Major League Baseball. I think when last we spoke, uh, the Mets were in pretty good shape. I think I was feeling cautiously optimistic. And uh, since then, things, of course... Uh, as, as, as is their want, have taken a, uh, a turn for the worse, as it were, with the Mets. Um, went into uh, a team-wide batting slump where they couldn't hit. So, of course, typical Mets fashion, right? They got off to a pretty good start, although the starting pitching was, was uh, surprisingly poor. You know, DeGrom had three very poor starts in a row. Syndergaard has not been particularly good. Wheeler had one really bad start. Other than that, he's been pretty good. Max has actually been surprisingly good, but then, of course, he got hurt, uh, although it looks to not be some, uh, anything serious. He should be making a start sometime soon. Uh, Jason Vargas, even, after two horrendous starts, was actually just was fine as a fifth starter. You know, five innings, keep you in the game kind of a thing. But Jay was familiar. The bullpen has been shaky. Familiar was terrible. Then he went on the DL. Seth Lugo got off to a very poor start, as did Gesellman. Edwin Diaz, the closer, been good, not great. But the Mets were hitting. Um, then they stopped hitting. The pitching started to come around. DeGrom had you know, some really good games. And Diaz uh, lost two games where the Mets were tied in ninth inning. The Reds gave up solo home runs to lose those games. The Mets won, lost the game 2-1 and won nothing. Uh, two of those games came when DeGrom pitched, so it felt like last year all over again. Where the guy pitches great, but they still don't score for him. Um, during which time, you know, look, Brandon Nimmo got off to a very slow start. Then he got hot. Then genius Mickey Calloway decided to pull him out of the leadoff spot, move him down in the lineup, to which I believe he responded by going 0 for 25. And Calloway put Jeff McNeil in the leadoff spot. Look, 
Jeff McNeil is a wonderful hitter. He's got great bat control, right? He's hitting like about, literally hitting like 350. He don't walk a ton, but he walks enough. He's already gotten hit by eight pitches, so his on-base percentage is way over 400. I get if you just look at it like that, sure, you want him hitting leadoff, but you don't want him hitting leadoff because Brandon Nimmo's real value to this team is as a leadoff hitter. Because if Brandon Nimmo's going well, he's going to get on base over 400 percent of the over 40 percent of the time. And McNeil, you can hit anywhere. You can hit him second. You can hit him third. By the way, guys hitting 350, gap to gap type of hitter, line drive, doubles. Doesn't strike out, make cut. What 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 number hitter does that sound like? Mm, I don't know, maybe a third place hitter. But no, because we're the Mets, and even though we have a new GM, the new GM is the agent for the third place hitter who can't hit his way out of a paper bag in Robinson Cano. So the culture of nonsense continues. Listen, I don't care what Robinson Cano did for the Yankees or what he did for the Mariners. He is not pulling his weight right now with the Mets. Has he been horrible? No, but he should not be hitting third. You know, he's hitting about 260 with three home runs and 12 RBIs. And he's not walking much either. Is it, is it, is it, is it why is it beyond the, the, beyond, out of the question that Robinson Cano could get moved down in the order to fifth or sixth? God forbid, right? Nope, because this is what the Mets do. Because he's a big name and the GM was his agent and he's a superstar, even though he's not anymore. Because he's 36, coming off a PED suspension, and he's underwhelmed so far in the field and with the bat. But guess what? Nope. We won't even think about moving him out of the three-hole. But Brandon Nimmo, who I know can hit leadoff because he did it great last year, him will move out of the order to his detriment and the team's so that he could go 0 for 25. And by the way, Callaway still hasn't restored him back to the leadoff spot. And he's starting to show a few signs of coming out of it. He's got a couple of walks the other night. So, I mean, again, look, the, the manager is a major problem. He has no feel for this team. He has no idea how to write out a lineup. And listen, to be fair, I don't know how much of it's him. I mean, look, Terry Collins went on Fox Sports two weeks ago and said, managers don't even write out the lineups anymore. It all comes from the general manager and, and the front office and the analytics guys. Now, look, I, I don't know if that and the story didn't get a ton of traction, which I'm surprised. I don't know if that's true, and I don't know if it's true of the Mets. But if it is, I mean, forget it. I mean, the sport may as well not. I mean, the, why would you ever want to be a manager? I mean, the one tool that a manager has is the lineup card. Now, look, in the joke of a culture that exists with the Mets, you know, that, 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 and even Terry Collins, by the way, you know, sorry, Terry, but same thing. I mean, there's never any repercussions with the Mets for poor play, bad base running, you know, you're in a slump, whatever. Everybody just keeps playing. You know, nobody moves. Nobody gets sat down, miss a sign, miss a cutoff man, stupid base running mistake. It's all, it's all just accepted. It's all tolerated. But in the old days, it used to be the lineup card used to be the manager's tool. You don't tote, you don't, you know, you're not pulling your weight. You're going to sit. You do something dumb, you miss a sign, you ignore a sign, you know, you get you make the first or third out at third, which used to be Cardinal Sin, now that's tolerated too. You know, Michael Conforto the other night in the game doesn't score from second base on a double off the wall. That yes, I understand the center fielder had his glove on it for a half a second, he crashed into the wall, and Michael Conforto still couldn't score on a double that was hit to dead center field in San Diego. 
because he doesn't know what the hell he's doing on the base paths. And that's just fine and dandy with everybody. And in, and in fact, to be fair, Conforto gave himself a hard time after the game. By the way, the Mets lost that game 3-2. to two. And then also had another situation where they had second and third one out and, of course, couldn't get the run home, struck out, Thomas Nido. Um, but then the manager, of course, absolves him in the postgame and says, well, it was a tough read. He did everything right there. I, I mean, this is what we're up against, folks. It's what we're up against. So I have zero faith in the manager, none. And what's supposed to be his forte pitching, he's, he's not very good at when to pull a starter, when to take a starter out, what bullpen pieces to use. He's not shown an affinity for that either. So there's really not much to be said in Mickey Callaway's defense. Um, you know, Todd Frazier, who, let's, can we be clear? Todd Frazier was atrocious for the Mets last year. Look, I know all the baseball writers here, Joel Sherman and Ken Davidoff and Mike Puma and uh, Anthony DiComo, all the local Mets guys and the, and the national writers that cover for the Post. I know you all love Todd Frazier because he never saw a camera or a microphone he didn't like. I get it. But he is terrible. And if it was anybody else, there would have been five articles already written that the Mets have to release him. Forget about benching him. And the Mets, up until finally two games ago, they benched him. But he came back. As soon as he came off the injured list, even though J.D. Davis was playing fine, better than fine, had some clutch hits, okay? Not as good a defender as Todd Frazier, but a much better hitter. And again, Todd Frazier was terrible for the Mets last year. See, I don't want to hear about Todd Frazier as a track record. Trot Frazier's track record with the Mets is bad. And if he wasn't making $9 million, he probably wouldn't even be on the team. But again, the owners are not going to eat that money. Or if you want to keep him around because he's a good guy, that's fine. He should not be starting. I mean, it's not fine, but I could, I could somewhat abide that as long as he's not starting. I mean, he should not be playing. He's terrible. He's a mistake hitter. You know, he had a nice little run with the Yankees a couple years ago. And Sandy Alderson lazily signed him based on that body of work. But, I mean, the guy had one breakout year seven years ago. He had 40 home runs. Other than that, he's an all-or-nothing mistake hitter. He's not very good. He's, he's the last guy you want up with a runner on third and less than two outs. The last guy. Because you can get him out without having to throw a strike. I mean, he's, he's just terrible. But, on, on, but here we go with the Mets. Well, he's Todd Frazier. What? You kidding? Have you watched how he's played? And again, if J.D. Davis hadn't played well, then I could understand. Or Jeff McNeil, by the way, who should probably be playing third base. Now, Jed Lowry should be playing third base. But, of course, he got hurt, and he's still hurt. And was supposed to come back last Friday, but then he can't. And then it was going to maybe meet, meet, be today, although they're off today. Or maybe it was going to be yesterday, but they got rained out. Thankfully, they have a day off today. And then they go down to Washington tomorrow. We'll see. Now, having said all of this, the Mets are 19 and 20. Pitching starting to come around. DeGrom has been great his last couple starts. Wheeler's been much better lately. Syndergaard's been eh. You expect him to come around. Gaselman and Lugo in particular have been very good lately. Diaz has been good in, Diaz has been very good in safe situations, perfect in safe situations. Now, they haven't been all clean, but he hasn't blown a save yet, but he's lost two games when the Mets were tied. 
So the bullpen started to come around a little bit. Starting pitching looks like it's stabilized. And the Mets have shown a little life now. You know, they had a big uh, output. Where they scored 15 runs on Friday. But, it, you know, it's against the Marlins. Take it with a grain of salt. The Marlins are an embarrassment. Derek Jeter is an embarrassment of a Major League Baseball executive. An embarrassment. They're a joke. They're 10 and 29. It's the most ridiculous construction of a team I've ever seen. Listen, we all like Curtis Granderson as a guy. He's a great guy. He had a decent career with the Mets, better career with the Yankees. What the hell is he doing starting every day for the, for the Marlins for a bad team? Hitting 145. I mean, you, you telling me, and, and if the Marlins don't have a young outfielder that they should be running out there every day and getting at-bats, then, then, I mean, they, they really don't know what the hell they're doing. And I know they have one, Lewis Brinson, who they got in the Yellows trade, who's so bad they had to send him down again. That trade's looking really good. That's looking like a really good trade for the Marlins. Good job, Jeets. So, yes, the Mets scored 15 runs Friday. Then they, they went back to their old ways. They eked out four runs, I guess, on Saturday. Conforto hit a home run. Alonzo hit a home run. DeGrom drove in a run. Seven innings, one run. Friday night, Wheeler pitched. He pitched great. By the way, he gave up nine hits. Six of them should have been outs. Six seeing eye ground balls. The Mets infield defense is A, seems like never positioned properly, and B, nobody on that infield has a lick of range. Ahmed Rosario, look, he's hit pretty well. He's actually done a really nice job of runners in scoring positions. He's in like 350 something, and he's second on the team in RBIs at 24. And he hit the grand slam uh, on Friday night to kind of get the Mets off and running when it was 3 nothing, made it 7 nothing. His fielding has been atrocious. He has 10 errors, should easily have 13 if it wasn't for some very kind official scoring. And, I mean, I never see the guy get to anything that's not hit right at him. And Robinson Cano, I mean, again, same, same thing. Unless the ball's hit right to him, he's not getting to it. And, look, Pete Alonso, who had a reputation of being a horrendous defender, has been actually very good, great at scooping balls in the dirt. He's been fine over at first base. He's not been the problem. Look, he's in the team's MVP so far. I mean, he's got 12 home runs. I think nine have been hit in the sixth inning or later, so he hits late and important home runs. I mean, he hit that home run off, that, off the Padres the other night, the one game they won on the road trip, after the night before, this loudmouth pitcher for the Padres has been in the league for five minutes, called him out because Alonzo got named Rookie of the Month and this guy didn't, and he said, oh, I'm coming for him. And you saw Alonzo, you know, wanted, and he heard about it. And, you know, the guy, look, the guy's a good pitcher for the Padres. And he shut the Mets down. Okay, also happened to catch the Mets at the perfect time when they're in a team-wide slump. But then the next game, late in the game, Alonzo smashes, I mean, crushes a two-run homer in the eighth inning to put the Mets up 7-5 in a game they were losing 5-2 at one point. I mean, like a bolt from the blue, just exactly what the team needed. Right, four-game losing streak. Got trash talked the night before, and Alonzo took it to heart and didn't hide and said, "Look, I feel terrible, and tomorrow's a must-win." Well, in a game that he deemed a must-win and publicly said stated, he crushes a two-run homer in a tie game in the eighth inning to give the Mets the win. I mean, he has been even more than you could have hoped for as a Met fan. He's been tremendous. Conforto's been very quiet, hitting under 200 runners in scoring position. 
Nimmo's gotten off to a poor start, although, again, part of that's the manager's fault. Other than McNeil and Alonzo, the rest of the lineup has been bad. Wilson Ramos has been an unmitigated disaster, both offensively and defensively. And look, I can't get on Van Wagenen about that. I thought it was a good signing, and hopefully it will be because he's been you know, a, a 300 hitter his whole career. And he has driven in, I think, around 20 runs or so. He's been okay with runners in scoring position. But, I mean, he's got one home run. The guy's 260 pounds. He's got one home run. I mean, I know he's more of a line drive hitter than a power hitter, but, you know, he's not walking much, and his defense has been lousy. So, I mean, you hope Lowry comes back, but I, J.D. Davis needs to play third base every day. You want to bring Todd Frazier in late in the game and the Mets have a lead defensive replacement? Fine. That's it. It's the only time he should be playing. Keon Broxton has been terrible. He had a good first week. Other than that, he's been awful. Ligaris is Ligaris gives you what Ligaris gives you. It's good defense. No, he can't hit. We've been seeing this for seven years now. You can live with that as long as everybody else is doing their job. But they haven't. So despite all the negativity, they're still 19 and 20. Nobody else in the division. I mean, the Nationals have been even worse than the Mets. The Nationals, I believe, are eight games under 500. They're a mess. They've had injuries all over the place. They fired their pitching coach already. The Braves are, I think, 500. I think they're 20 and 20. And the Phillies, I think, are like five or six. You know, look, it's, it's, it's May 13th. The Mets, the season is not over. the pitching stabilizes, they should be fine. But again, I would just like to see some changes where, I don't know, it's a merit-based system, perhaps? I don't care what the name on the back of your jersey says or what the back of your baseball card says. Who's playing the best now? So, drop Robinson Cano in the lineup. It's not the end of the world. It's not Mickey Mantle. Put Nimmo back in the leadoff spot. Hit McNeil third. Keep Alonzo in the two-hole if you want. Move Conforto up to the two-hole. I don't care. Put Alonzo in the cleanup hole. That's where actually where he's been lately. That's where he, I, I like him in there anyway. And put Cano behind him in five-hole. And put Ramos behind Cano in the six-hole. And J.D. Davis can hit seventh. And Rosario can hit eighth. Done. All right, lastly couple of funny new little little quick nugget so jay bruce was part of that big trade um with the mets you know for cano and edwin diaz and the whole thing he has i believe he has 12 home runs i think he's hitting about 190 hold on we're gonna go i think he's got 20 hits and 12 home runs or something something weird like that hold on we're gonna go to it in a second i just i found that fascinating doing the Joey Gallo from Texas, who we talked about a bunch of times last year. All right, Jay Bruce. Jay Bruce has 24 hits, 128 at-bats. He has 24 hits. Of those 24 hits, 12 are home, half are home runs. And he has struck out 43 times in 128 at-bats. Struck out 40. He's hit him 188. But he's got six doubles, too. So of his 24 hits, 18 are for extra base hits. 
Weird. 188. But still has a decent OPS, 771, which is over league average. And then the lastly, we'll just get you out on this. Uh, not to say I told you so, but Yankees fans, friends, told you it was a long season. Everybody relax. It's going to be fine. They're just fine. And the great thing for the Yankees is they're now basically tied for first place with Tampa Bay, and they still don't even have their big guns back yet. Right? And Duhar just came back, but Stanton's still out. Judge is still out. Severino's going to be out for a long time. Uh, but Domingo Herman, he's pitched great. He's been the Yankees' best starter, pretty much. Uh, this Gio Ursh- Ursula Andrus has been great for them at third base. DJ LeMahieu, who we knew was a good, solid pickup to begin with, better than solid. I mean, underrated player, professional hitter. He's been great. Sanchez, since he's come back off the DL, has been mashing. They're getting Aaron Hicks back soon. The, the, the Yankees are going to be just fine. We knew that. And the bullpen, for the most part, has been good. And the Red Sox, by the way, after looking like one of the worst teams in baseball, I believe they went 6-13 and 13 to start the year, or on fire, and now they're right back in the mix, too. I think they're two or three games over 500. And Seattle, who is the darlings of Major League Baseball, are, have come crashing back down to earth. And in fact, let's go to the standings real quickly. And we'll just give you a quick update there. Tampa 24-15. Yankees are now 24-16, eight games over. Just went and took two out of three from Tampa Bay. Tanaka outpitched Snell, the reigning Cy Young winner yesterday. Red Sox now 22-19. They looked like they were a mess. They're now won five in a row, eight and two in the last ten. Rest of that division not worth talking about. And then, yeah, Seattle, who everybody loved, is now 20-23. Two and eight in their last ten. Uh, they, they, they've been a total mess. They've been what was predicted, but then they got off to the hot start. Everybody got excited. Now they come crashing back down to earth. And like I said, the Mets are four games back. I, I mean, again, you don't really look at the standings in May, middle of May, but just saying, all's not lost yet with the Mets. I know it's very easy to get negative, and I just did. And they don't give you a lot of reason. You know, the, the recent track record is not good. Recent track record, most of the track record. But the Cubs, who I talked about, seemed off. They're 24 and 14. They've been probably the hottest team in baseball for the last three weeks. That division is going to be a dogfight. Brewers are good at 24 and 18. Cardinals hit a little speed bump here. They're 2 and 8 in their last 10, but they're, they're always a force to be reckoned with. And the Pirates are 20 and 17. Very tough division. And then out west, the Dodgers just keep doing their thing. Cody Bellinger is having a phenomenal year, still hitting over 400. One of the most athletic guys in the league. He can play center, he can play right, he can play first. Threw out Strasburg from right field the other day on what would have been a base hit. Uh, he's got, I think, 14 home runs. I mean, he's having an MVP. Like him and he and Yelich right now are the early leaders in the clubhouse for MVP. But I told you, Yankees are going to be fine. Red Sox are going to be fine. Now, look, it's a long season. It's going to be up and downs. Yankees are going to hit probably a little rough patch at some point along the way. So are the Red Sox. It happens. It's baseball. All right, that's going to do it for tonight's show. As always, thank you for listening. Check us out on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on SoundCloud. The website is jamalaboutsports.com. This Facebook Facebook page is jamalaboutsports. The Twitter account is at jamalaboutsportnos. Until next time, thanks for listening. Peace out.